and in many cultures, you can't be a healer without a wound. So what's your wound? You know, don't hide your wound. Every one of the any one every one of us sitting in this circle today has a wound. Bear it with pride. Allow it to really inform your sensitivity and the way you connect with people. You know, work from your heart. Welcome back to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. This week, we have an incredible guest to share with you. Co-host Augustine Colebrook is joined by the one and only Elizabeth Davis. You heard me right, Elizabeth Davis, the author of Heart and Hands, Orgasmic Birth, as well as many other incredible books, the co-founder of NMI. She shares some of her own personal history, how she was led into this incredible work and world of midwifery and birth, her history working with MANA, the history of NMI, how it was founded, her involvement, and of course imparts her magical wisdom. Settle in with a warm drink and your heart open and ready to learn. In Elizabeth's own words, midwife is not just a noun, it's a verb, and we're going to learn all about that this week. Let's dive in. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me and share with our listeners. So thank you. Of course. It's my pleasure. You probably need no introduction because you are one of our, our bedrock, our, our core, core leaders in midwifery for many decades now. Uh, but if, if folks don't know who you are, Elizabeth Davis the author of Heart and Hands and many other exciting and amazing things. Do you want to give an overview? Because you'll do it better than I do. Do you want um, to tell people who you are? Jeez. Uh, well, I guess I would call myself a pioneer, but not uh, by intention. You know, I, it, I had a really traumatic hospital birth in the dark ages of childbirth. I call that time the early 70s. And you know, so bad that I couldn't find a midwife, even though I, I knew that I wanted one and very few people did back then. Uh, but it was a bad birth with way too much Pitocin and tying me down, literally tying me down. Um, so then that was followed two years later by this magnificent home birth that was actually an orgasmic birth that I dare not use the word for decades, lest people discredit the rest of my work, you know. So um, that's my personal story. But what it did was it motivated me so strongly to to do this work regardless. I felt like having experienced the, the contrast and the impact on me personally, like how could I not serve that? How could I not? And mm. I wasn't crazy. You know, I mean, it, at times I wondered because when you're running out in the middle of the night, you have two small children at home and you know if something goes wrong, even if you have no fault, you're you're in jail. Um, but again, I really yeah. felt called, truly called to do this work. <clears throat> well, I think that one of the cornerstones really of, of, of pleasure for me was the very first MANA meeting uh, back in the day when MANA was truly representative of uh, the diversity in midwifery. And I think there were probably 75 of us there and the takeaway for me was, this is wonderful. I have a national identity. But the second takeaway was, um, oh my God, the midwives that are practicing legally are so much more relaxed than I am. <laughs> so what do I need to do to make this happen? I was asked to be on the board as a volunteer and was quickly guided by a couple of others on the board, Tish Damon and Carol Leonard. And they said, you have to self-certify in California. And I said, why in the world would we do that if we're not legal? And they said, because it will get you together, you articulate your bottom lines and remember to always be inclusive. This is not an exclusionary process. Take it all over, ask for input. If anyone has a complaint, make a way for it to happen. And that translated to my call when it was time for national certification. And that's another story, but let's just say it was time to 
do the opposite of what the people in charge wanted to do and reach out to all the states and say, we're gonna have a big meeting. It's gonna be round tables, bring your process. We're gonna cut and paste, talk about what works, what doesn't work for you. And that's how we'll develop a prototype. And then we're gonna take it to everybody and get input. And that, that process, I mean, what an incredible honor to be part of that, that moment in history. So and yeah, and you were joined by some some other incredible <laughs> California midwives as well. Yeah. Can you tell us who else you were working with in those early days? I think we've heard of their names. Well, Shannon Anton definitely. She and I co-founded NMI. Um, it, Maria Iarillo was was part of it. Um, I'm trying to think. There were so many California midwives. I know. Wasn't Mary Jackson a part of that time frame as well? She was. I don't know how actively she she was. I don't think she mm -hmm. was at that meeting, but she was definitely mm -hmm. strong in terms of wanting to to move this forward. Yeah. 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 There's another great midwife I spoke to recently, um, Lily Aquarius, in um, in the Bay Area, I believe. Anyway, I don't know. She yet. she. She stayed really underground, I think. She knew about the licensing coming and she stayed in, in the underground. But it's incredible work. And so your your foreway into midwifery was kind of always dovetailed with advocacy and education. Yeah. It seems like. It's like you barely even got on your feet as a midwife before you were already midwifing other midwives. It's yeah. True. I mean, I wrote Heart and Hands only three years into practice, first edition. Right. And right, that's what I remember hearing. That I had in the first edition, I had never even experienced. Like manual removal of a placenta, I actually said, according to the medical books I read, that the mother would have to be restrained because I didn't know any wow. better. Um, wow. And when that, the book, the book writing wasn't ever a commercial enterprise for me. It came out of a moment where um, one of the grand midwives in the Bay Area was quite jealous of my younger practice and spread a rumor that we had a death at home. Well, that, you know, that can end your career. And I just started writing down everything I knew. It was almost like an act of, do I know what I'm doing? And I got into the writing and then mm. met another author and the author said, you know, he read some of it and he said, I think I can get this published. And I published, <laughs> I was a lot, I really, wasn't looking for that, you know? Um, but once it was published, then I had doulas coming to me and saying, will you teach us skills? And then the more general interest of will you teach us midwifery and the curriculum expanded over time, but it's always stayed holistic, not, not in the, the way that the term is overused, but I'm really concerned when I say midwifing midwives, I'm looking at the personal growth part of becoming a midwife. Because what I tell my students pretty early on is, you know, just about anybody can learn the skills and get the knowledge, but the personal growth to carry that much responsibility is the hard part. So let me mm -hmm. give you this journal assignment or let's do this practice together in small groups or some way of keeping up internally, emotionally with that charge. And I think that if you do that, you, you, you end up with very strong-minded, but clear-headed individuals that, that will stay in, stay in the game. Mm. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And we lost so many great midwives oh. to burnout, yeah. out, exhaustion, car accidents, divorce, obesity, diabetes, exhaustion, um, and, and bad outcomes and that vilifying your sibling midwives, which you, you alluded to, how are we going to decrease the losses? How, what's next? Like, this is something I'm working on right now. I'm sure you have some answers. I'm, I do a lot of work internationally, which has also been a great honor. And it's mostly come through midwifery today, which also has been a grassroots movement. So we'll, we'll go do a conference in Germany and midwives from Israel will come up and say, will you come to Israel? And Jan says, sure, find us a venue, we'll go. So, you know, Bulgaria, Latvia, all these places where there's very little midwifery or organization. 
And in all of these places, um, if midwives get into trouble, which they do eventually, it's happening now in France for the first time, midwives are striking out for home birth and they're being arrested. They are held accountable to obstetrical standards of care. In other words, how do doctors do it? And if you didn't do it that way, you're doing it wrong. So as difficult as it might sound, articulating core midwifery standards of practice is possible. And the way I know this is after I gave this lecture in Finland, I had a workshop and there were midwives at that conference from 40 countries. And I said, let's just, let's just take a shot at this. How about, how about who wants to volunteer to participate in articulating our standards for post-dates practice? So let's look at continuity of care as a factor in what we do. And let's look at health status of the mother in what we do. And let's include everything that's part of our practice, including our skills, which are superior in the, for the most part to anything ultrasound can come up with. And let's see what you get. And I thought, well, there's probably gonna be a lot of yelling and hollering and carrying on because can you really herd cats, you know? But no, in 40 minutes, they knocked it out. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think of, you know, I could tell you a story about the mama <clears throat> 44 five with good dates. And I know they were good dates because I saw her at 20 weeks, measured her uterus. She was spot on and she, she didn't want a midwife. And all the women in my community said, you've got to talk to her. And I said, no, I don't. That's her business. If she wants to free birth, she can do it. Um, but she did come to me for that conf confirmation of dates. And then she came to me again uh, later in the pregnancy, I showed her how to feel the baby's head down, how to be sure of her amniotic fluid volume, which is crucial in the post-dates period. And um, she she kept posting me and, you know, that that moment came at 44.5. And I thought, I can't wait to see a picture of this baby. Are we going to see the dismature, shriveled little infant? No, we see a pink, plump term baby. And all she had to say about that was, well, you know, my mama went to 43 and my aunties went to almost 43. So I guess this is normal for me. And I thought, yeah, I guess it is. And it's normal in birth. And we need to find a way to let the world know or let the country know or let our area know that we have a way of practice. I don't think it will be that hard for us to agree, agree upon it any more than <laughs> agreeing on certification. That's an interesting proposal. If we don't agree on it, I think we're headed towards a disaster of kind of epic proportions, global proportions, because I think it's possible in one generation to, to kind of permanently lose a body of knowledge. Do you think yeah. that's alarmist or do you agree? Well, I think I have to agree. Like, you know, five, 10 years ago, I would not have agreed, but at this point, I think I would have to agree. And uh, the, the one thing, when I was at the, at the first MANA meeting and, and Tish Damon, who was one truly one of the leaders of the time from New Mexico, and also a chain smoker, which was not horrible back then. I, I would be knocked out at night after a long day of MANA meetings, and she would be leaning over me on the bed and smoking and talking to me and telling me what's what. And she said, always remember, it's, it's not about, it's not about midwives. It's about mothers and babies. It's about mothers and babies. So we can get lost in thinking we're it and fighting for us when we need. And the reason I say this is because when you bring up international, this is a global health concern. You know, this yes. is about life and the quality of life. Yes. More we know about. And it's especially important because so much of the globe is following U.S. policy. Right. And so as the U.S. creates more and more barriers to midwifery and is more and more hostile to midwifery practice, um, the world follows suit. Right. And, and, you know, my students are always shocked when we really dig into the research on cesarean. And we look at the accreta, you know, the incidence of accreta, which, you know, I could not figure that out because 
my understanding of of how the you know the blastocyst embeds is you know it makes its journey down the fallopian tube and it launches into the uterine space and it goes looking for the richest site to 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 lodge and that's usually the fundal area so with the next pregnancy it will go not to that site again because it doesn't reuse a site it'll go somewhere else but it'll keep going up and that's why lower and lower with more and more pregnancies there's a higher incidence of previa but i could not figure out why this smart blastocyst after one cesarean only one birth would head on down to the uterine scar it didn't make sense then i thought well but if that uterine scar is not well prepared and the endometrium decidua is not well reunited and any of the myometrium is exposed, it's going to go there because that's a rich site. So, it, well, and, and also post post surgery, um, there's a pretty traditional habit to swab out the uterus. So, yeah. with fairly rough gauze, they're actually abrading the lining yeah. of the uterus, which will create this kind of like. I don't want to say scar tissue, but this um, less optimal place for the blastocyst to implant. So I, I think it actually makes perfect sense. And this added piece of there being uterine windows or even just, um, yeah. like you said, myometrium sticking through, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then, and then you've got the consequences of accreta and the, the rise of maternal mortality and and the, the loss of long-term fertility and all this stuff that nobody is told. And that's, you know, there's a huge <laughs> public education um, aspect of what we need to be doing that I don't think we're doing effectively yeah. because people don't yeah, understand no. the yeah. of their choice. Yeah, the consequences. Yeah, well, and they just don't understand, period. Like, I mean, if you ask someone in middle America, general like you're walking through a mall or you're walking through a town square or something you ask someone hey what's a midwife there'll be like one of three answers they'll be like oh that's like a doula right <laughs> because the doulas have fantastic public relations yeah. um or or they'll be like oh yeah like that tv show called the midwife not realizing that it exists in america today it's only a british thing right or the third thing is they have no idea what's yeah. the midwife you know, and those three answers from a huge subset of the population are mm -hmm. really devastating. That that tells us that we, yeah. as midwives, do not understand or are not working towards public relations. And if you think of it from a business standpoint, it's a sales funnel, right? And the top of the sales right. funnel is awareness of your product. Nobody fucking knows. You know, it, just <laughs> so keep in mind that, that that's, doulas, where that's where we've got to. Doulas, for yeah. the most part as per the medical establishment, are not nearly as threatening as we are. So it's been much easier for them to advance. Yeah, yeah. And to get yeah, funded. In definitely, definitely. Where we really are, <clears throat> where we don't, you know, that I teach my students at the very beginning what Robbie Davis Floyd gave us in her three paradigms of healthcare. You know, the technocratic, mm -hmm. humanistic, and the holistic. And when we move into holism, which most midwives do, do listen tend to get kind of caught in humanism because they're bridging the gap mm. between the technocrats and the holistic but we're in holism mm. and that's a model of equality and transparency mm. and i, mm. I so beautiful I them, for example like so say you had a huge fight with your partner in the morning and you're going into a prenatal are you going to try to hide it and practice quote clinical detachment how are you going to acknowledge your emotional state with your client. It doesn't mean process. You know, you simply say, you know, if you're noticing I'm a little off today, I had a rough time with my partner this morning, but I'm 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 good now and I'm really glad to see you. And in that, you you model honesty and you want your client to be honest with you. But if you force your client to pretend she doesn't see, that creates a separation. We can't afford that. That's how we fall into um, situations that maybe could have been prevented in terms of outcome. So there's there's so much about what we do that's magnificent <laughs> and, and really would benefit culture. It's magnificent is the word. Yeah, we'll link Robbie Davis Floyd's um, info in the show notes because yes, another seminary leader for sure.
So tell us about the school, founding the school. How did that happen? Who did it happen with? When did it happen? Tell us okay. all about that. Well, when when the law changed, and you know, we lost control of that process in California. It was basically usurped by the medical board who gave us the Nurse Midwifery Practice Act. And that's a long story of, of the, all the things that happened ever after that. Uh, but one of the requirements was a three-year program. And I had been teaching heart and hand. Shannon Anton was my former student. She was interested in starting a school. I said, well, you know, you heart and hands is a, an a integrated overview. And you followed up with coursework that was topical. So once you've got the foundation through heart and hands, you went on to create a segment on preeclampsia, a segment on fetal development, a segment on the liver function in pregnancy that became modules almost like study units. We should just put our stuff together, add clinical to that, let, let the students, once they have heart and hands foundation, do the modules in any order, according to what comes up in practice. And that was such a um, a great idea that we went for it. And it started as Midwifery Institute of California in 95 or 96. Um, but when we found out how hard it was to get a school accredited and pay for all of that in California, Shannon had moved to Vermont and she found that there in Vermont, you just go into a little office with a, you know, a, a nice person working there and you say, well, we're were meek accredited and they said, great, you're in, you know, it's only going to be $300 a year or whatever it was. So we became the National Midwifery Institute. And as time has moved on and I've become less able or less interested in the bureaucratic aspect of the work, um, I've taken a, a much more low key role in the school and I moved my curriculum into a prerequisite status. So it gives me a little bit more freedom in terms of how I evolve my course. And, um, you know, anybody can take my course. And that's how it's always been. People take it to know about being a midwifery. I mean, a midwifery educator or, or even just advancing their doula skills or um, anything along those lines. And if you go to my website, elizabethdavis.com, you'll find my schedule. Um, I didn't teach virtually until the pandemic, but once I got into teaching virtually, it dramatically expanded my student base and, and I had much more diversity in my classroom. So um, I love doing it and I've learned to do it well with Zoom and I teach live. We break into small groups where we're not a large group, like usually no more than 12. So everyone gets a chance to talk. We have discussions at large. We have small groups, as I said. It's, I love it. And I'm not planning on quitting anytime soon. <laughs> That's awesome. But you, you did, um, you grew with the, the school. I think we, we skipped a little chunk of data in there from starting in, in Vermont. Then it, it grew substantially. It, what, what year was that that it grew so much? Um, that would probably be the time when meek accreditation became a lot more exacting. And that's a complicated ah. topic, political topic too. But let's just say that meek was okay. audited by the US Department of Education who oversees meek. And that caused meek to be a lot more precise about the requirements. And, right. uh, you know, personally, we had to hire an accreditation expert would cost us a fortune thousands and thousands, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of dollars. And for a lot of programs, especially the smaller ones that became prohibitive. So uh, more, um, more oversight, more um, requirements for expanded staff, maybe not all, you know, kind of done in a rush. And, you know, if you look at the history of programs, a lot of great programs closed around that time. And I'm I don't know if I can give you an exact date, but I'm thinking, where are we now? It's 2023. I'm going to say maybe seven or eight years ago, something mm -hmm. like that. Things really shifted. So, yeah, me. Yeah, I think that's when uh, Birthing Weight got subsumed by Bastier. And yeah. um, there were a few other major changes that year, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
birthing way and the program in California, Nizoni is closed and- um, Yeah, Nizoni, Nizoni closed in 2015, I think, 20, yeah. no, 2017. Mm -hmm. I think Nizoni closed in 2017. And then of course, um, Birthing Way closed as well. Birthwise joined Bastier. Yeah. Um, yeah, some major changes. And there were a couple other schools I can't remember the name of right now. Anyway, yeah, big changes. And part of that was Meek being dictated by the U.S. government, U.S. education. Yes. And I, you mm -hmm. know, I, I've all, I didn't really, to tell you the truth, I really didn't want to start a school because I'm, <laughs> I, I'm okay. I'm portfolio process all the way. I love competency-based assessment. Yeah. I think where it's at, that's why the one part of our program that I'm still very involved with is the challenge for the California license, which is basically like a portfolio. You know, you there is an academic component, but it's run very much the way that that NARM now runs their academic component, where they cite the core areas of knowledge and you il illustrate how you accomplish them. And we create pretty wide berth for our challenge applicants to demonstrate. It's not just transcript, it's self-study. It's, you know, that, and it's, um, it's the only challenge currently. And uh, I, I do everything in my power to, of course, uphold the requirements of the challenge and interpret them with flexibility. Yeah. 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 And so then you you moved on from the school and they have a new executive director and a new director of education and they're expanding rapidly, I think. Last I heard, big things are happening. Yeah. Well, they're getting ready to um, to do what really is needed to be do for, done for a long time. And that is... Um, create instructor uh, instruction and instructor um, connection. So currently yeah. you get your modules and you do them on your own and you can go to a meeting with an instructor um, sometime during the week, but it isn't necessarily on your subject matter, which is still being corrected at a correspondence level. You mail in or email your module, it's looked over and sent back to you. And that really honestly is not the standard any longer in terms of Meek. So everything has to be either done virtually like I'm doing it or done in some other fashion. So there's direct contact. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's gonna take a lot of overhaul. Uh, one of the biggest changes that was instituted by, by Katie Krebs, who is um, our director, was a subscription model of enrollment meaning that mm. instead of putting down the big bucks, you're able to enroll for a fairly low fee of I think 550 is your first month. And then you continue to pay. And you pay mm. only as long as you're in the program. And one of the mm. beauties of the program is that you have opportunity for leave and you have up to seven years to complete it. So if mm. you, need, you know, take time off to have a baby or a personal emergency, a family emergency, you're able to do that. Or working through your way through a smaller practice. You know, we're trying uh, not to force people into the, the huge, we want continuity of care. We want our students to have that experience. Um, yeah. Nothing wrong with big birth center, getting your numbers too. But the foundation right. of continuity of care is really important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Well, so um, Elizabeth, I'd love to go with what's next. Like you've done, you know, this huge amount of advocacy work, this education, built the school, transitioned out, obviously this book and multiple revisions of the book, speaking internationally, creating coursework. What are you doing now? What makes you really happy? What do you love right now? Well, honestly, my daughter is making me write my life story. And I resisted yeah. that so much because I'm yes. like, Why I write my I'm still living my life story, but I'm starting <laughs> to write things That's down. Great. And, That's uh, great. And I'm also really, really drawn to a more deeper level of, of doing international education because I, I really, I try to teach my students, most of them have some degree of global identity, but probably less so in the States and other parts of the world. Um, yeah. And if you don't have an international identity by now, you're you're not making it here, in where we're going. That's right. 
So that's right. You know, I I just spent a month in France and I taught in both in northern France for three weeks and southern France for three weeks and then gave an address um, um, on posterior arrest and an OB conference. Wow, how fun. That's the kind of stuff I really want to do because um, it's the grassrootsy thing, you know, where um, it's so easy for disenfranchised people when the carrot is dangled, here's some power for you, you know, come, come on in, but showing them, no, no, there's an, as I've said, endless series of legitimacy hoops, they're going to make you jump through. Mm. And in the end, you may Mm. not have the profession you thought you had or wanted at all. So how about you? Mm, I feel like that's (laughs) happening in Sweden right now. So completely, they've Mm. lost so much as a result of the that dangling care. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Oh, no, but just <clears throat> that we created our own infrastructure in the United States with mm-hmm. the CPM. Mm-hmm. And, and with the CPM, the, the fact that they've held to the portfolio and have more or less said, we're going to keep it as long as someone wants to use it. That's the kind of model that I would like to see um, everywhere. And having experienced it firsthand, I know the ropes. Um, there was a time in MANA where we were courting favor with the ACNM and we'd go to the conferences and have a hospitality suite and all that stuff. And we were always kind of looked down upon. Um, And when we decided to go for a spot in um, the ICM, well, the vote was unanimous except for one. And that was the ACNM. They voted against our membership. And that was the point where I said, we're wasting our time. We we have other work over here and we can do it yeah do it yep that I really want people I think that's an important aspect and it's something really fulfilling to me because travel is in my blood I've wanted to do it since I was a little girl my mom and dad gave me these stack of books when I was a kid I don't know how they knew but you know of tingling in China and somebody in all these different countries and what the culture and like an anthropological child's experience of the world and it just inspired me so i feel really comfortable in that role and i'm hoping to do that more we hope you'll come to india <laughs> i would love to have you here that would be great <clears throat> Speaking of travel, do I have an opportunity to share with you? If you've ever attended one of our Midwifery Wisdom experiences before, you'll know that at the end of each conference, we always have a retreat where midwives can relax, rejuvenate, and connect. Well, this year's retreat will be an even more incredible opportunity to really relax. This year, from November 13th through 19th, we will be retreating in Belize. The beautiful Caribbean is calling your name. It's time to unplug, unwind, rejuvenate with a group of midwives, like-minded souls who are there for the same reason. You'll be staying in beautiful beach villas with private chefs featuring fresh cuisine, adventures, time for R&R. Trust me, you do not want to miss this. There are limited spots available, so make sure to grab your spot now if you want to get away on this tropical adventure. Well, let's, um, I I have two questions uh, for you that I think will be of particular interest to our audience. Um, We have a, we have a huge, a huge variety of folks who listen to us, maybe 10% who are, who are parents maybe another 10% who are doula or midwife hopefuls. Um, And then maybe 10% that are senior advanced midwives. But the huge bulk of our listeners are uh, active students and new midwives. And I think in traveling and teaching nationally, maybe you see this too. I teach a lot in the US. And I would say there is, I think, a bit of lack of knowledge or understanding about um, like what, how quickly it's all changed, I guess is the way I want to say. Like, you know, when you come into something, you can only see what you can see. You're like, oh, this is normal. Right. And so I wonder if you would take a moment and just kind of 
blow open the doors and tell us a little bit about the evolution in midwifery in the U.S. in your lifetime. Like what's different now that it, I know that's a huge question, isn't it? God, okay. Now, let me narrow it down. <laughs> well, I, guess, I, I think I, I think I know what to say. I think I okay. can, you okay, know, go well, for it. we succeeded in mainstreaming midwifery. Do you think so? Well, to some, I mean, certainly more than being a criminal. I mean, people, high five to that. Okay. So maybe legitimizing, but, but I don't think it's mainstream yet. All right. Okay. That's, there we go. Legitimizing is a better yeah. word. So we've done that. But now we have people coming into the profession that aren't coming into it in the same way as we did. Yeah, They're not yeah. coming to it as risk takers. They're not coming into it necessarily experiencing it as a calling. They're coming into it as a profession. They're paying good money for it. And they're more than willing to do what they're quote, supposed to do. And so what, what, I see happening there is what you fear is where, you know, we could, we could lose midwifery and, and that, I mean, real midwifery and, and turn it into medwifery. And, and that's pretty much where it could end up. So. Yeah. Uh, well, like when we started, there's this whole body of knowledge around the, 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 the edge, like you mm -hmm. were saying, 44 weeks and five days. I personally carried to 44 weeks myself. Like there's this whole body of knowledge around um, the edge. And so prior to medical industrial takeover of the U.S. In a, in a big way, like 1930s, 1940s, where we were still in that transition time, there are stories of midwives all over the country who kept two pound babies alive using the oven and dr yes, sock yeah. drawers and kangaroo yeah. care. There's right. stories of women being pregnant for a whole month later. Mm -hmm. You know, there's stories of like wading through creeks to get this specific medicine uh, herb I mean, that they can crush, yeah. you know, like the fringe, yeah. the Elizabeth, edge, the border. Elizabeth, thinks of Elizabeth Gilmore who found a national college. She, right, she, right, right. she used to get out on horseback with a, with a rifle. To some person, <laughs> right, right, you know, and yeah. you know that's this is how Frontier was founded. The same right. thing, um, midwives on horseback. Um, there's there's an incredible legacy of Frontier midwifery in Alaska. Um, yeah. Certainly, it's it's incredible where we were just 50, 70 years ago. Yeah. So, in the span of one lifetime, we have gone from really community based midwives. Mm -hmm. taking care yeah. of every one that came to their doorstep mm -hmm. and that 50 to 70 years we our scope and our legitimacy has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until now um there are state law about yeah. not being able to deliver breech babies as if the breech baby reads the books or the law you know like you can't predict you can't legislate out nature um, what, so I think I just, I don't know. I, I feel like new midwives, student midwives may not grasp the enormity of the transformation. Well, you are making me think of one of the, one of the, uh, assignments that I, or even just observations I make in my first class. So now we're going from large to small, or I don't think it's small, but it's more particular. Macro to micro. Yeah. 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 And I, um, by way of talking about the oppression of midwives, not, not just in the United States, but the long history of oppression, the Inquisition, et cetera, and why midwives were so threatening and how um, that lineage we now know is genetically encoded and how it's normal to fear being that kind of midwife. Uh, so exploring fear, giving an exercise to students on discovering how they lodge fear, working to evolve that. Um, and then there's a point where I say, you know, it used to be that midwives were the usually the older ones in society. I'm not saying we need that now because we need lots of midwives and you're here at the right time. But they were, they'd been through life. In fact, they, they, they experienced a lot of hardship and in many cultures, you can't be a healer without a wound. So what's your wound? You know, don't hide your wound. 
every one of the any one every one of us sitting in this circle today has a wound bear it with pride allow it to really inform your sensitivity and the way you connect with people you know work from your heart that that's a small step that i can make with each group of students to help them like almost remember remember midwifery really connect with a deeper lineage of midwifery I don't know what else we can do. I mean, if I can do the large going around the world and I can still do this, that micro, I, mm. I, I, I hope that everyone watching will think about their connection to lineage and their, the, you know, the honor of the wound and, and, and utilizing it constructively and recognizing that this work ultimately is sacred. It is a sacred charge. And if you work in that way with it, there's there's a way we receive information in tight spots with that open-heartedness and, and that consciousness. And midwives share this, they share, you know, they, they talk about some some particular nuance of complication that they didn't read about in any book. And there they are finding their hands guided to do certain like, whoa, Oh, I do this and then I do that. Okay, and it works. It does work because you're open to the field. You're not in this tight little box of so just spreading that word, you know, getting that word out. Elizabeth, your words are magic. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I had an experience actually. The first birth I attended without my preceptor was a surprise breech birth. <laughs> she was a g6 and her baby was this floaty so you know he just yeah. floated bum first and i had never done a breach with my preceptor either at that time this was in 1999 i guess and um yeah same thing yeah my hands were like oh well release the feet and oh we do this and uh -huh. yeah. yeah it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating there is this connection to universal flow if we can work on that connection that intuition i have an exercise on the front page of our website midwiferywisdom.com called the sacred yes and holy no and it's a way to calibrate intuition yeah so we'll share that link as well in the show notes yeah, that's, that's, so that's I, yeah i mean the more we can do that the better right and there's so much that gets in the way of intuition these days well that's we do yeah. we do a lot on that and and the self-care that it takes to keep that channel open yeah is you know i have experienced yeah. midwives come into my class um at near the end and they all talk about self-care they all talk about it not not yeah. like a kind of narrow sense of walk your talk but the broad sense of um personal um health and well-being and rejuvenation and ultimately the connection yeah. to, the, to the big space yeah 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 mm. Well, it's uh, it's such a pleasure hearing you speak. I read um, a quote on your website that listening to Elizabeth is like pure poetry. And I agree. <laughs> My so last question for you today is um, to go from looking backwards to now look forward. And because we have this robust student and new midwife following these, what do you want them to pay close attention to? What do you want them to uh, focus on? What do you want them to know? Well, the macro, of course, is the international identity and keeping abreast of that. And, and the big picture, keeping the big picture in mind of, you know, I, the one way I put it is, are you becoming the midwife you would want to have at your birth? And if you're not... <laughs> You need Ooh, to read. Oh, that's that. tweetable. Oh, that's so good. Okay, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> um, and then there's that sustainability piece. And that's yes. a huge piece for a lot of yes. a lot of young people because they don't want to martyr themselves because they're already in a tight spot financially. So I think of what happened in the Bay Area and founding the collective, which I just want to share because I think it's great. And, and what that is is there are between at any point in time five and maybe 25 private practices and the everybody in the group agrees to volunteer to be assist for another midwife only for the critical moments of birth 
California law requires two midwives, two, two trained midwives at a birth. So if you worked in partnership, you'd have to divide the money in half, meaning you'd have to do more births. So instead with this collective, there it's a pool of midwives and and say that I'm the primary midwife, but I love working with so-and-so as my assist. I introduce her to, to the mama, um, the birthing pregnant person later in pregnancy, and she can say yes or no. And if she likes the person, great. And that assist comes only when the, the mother is fully active and nearing birth, stays through the birth to be that extra pair of hands if there's a dual emergency with mother and baby, and then is there in the immediate postpartum and goes home. So for that, the assist is paid 10% of the midwife's fee. So if your fee is 6,000, that assist gets 600 and the midwife keeps the rest and can keep her practice at a level that is manageable instead of getting crazy like I did for a while and did seven births a month, which is too many for a sole midwife to handle. So the collective model and the another beauty of that is you have a whole lot of midwives you can chat with about anything, like call them up in the middle of a labor and say, give me a chat. I want to check in with you here. Do I know what I'm doing on this one? Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, yeah, yeah. You know, holiday party or, you know, summer party in the park. Bring all the home birthers with their babies, the pregnant one, bring them all together. Create community, you know? Yes. That's a great model. Yes. Oh, that's a great model. And that's a great suggestion call to action you know create community i i fully believe in that as well we broke up for a quick second when you said um how much was too much so i think our listeners will want to know when you said i got too oh. busy i had too much what is oh, what number is seven that? seven births a month seven seven a month is too much for mm -hmm. i'm very okay. you know i'm doing all the prenatals all the postpartums yeah That's i mean most midwives are gonna are gonna and private practice like that are gonna hover around three births a month maybe. or maybe yeah yeah and that's about it that's a good number that's yeah. a good number you're allowed to fully give to the client and yet you don't lose yourself yeah exactly yeah I feel like also the old midwifery adage is when you go over eight a month you start having duplicates hmm hmm I didn't know that Have you noticed that no I never got yeah <laughs> I <guess>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I I was one of those midwives that was super busy for a time but yeah um I think I think I agree with you I think three to seven is a sweet spot and um four or five is busy mm -hmm. yeah and you could do one or two months where it's seven and then a few months where it's two or three and then your life would would make sense but when then, you start doing eight, 10, 12 a month, you don't have a personal life anymore or your clients don't have a real midwife anymore. They have a clinician. Right. That's yeah. Don't be afraid to take a break. If it's time to take a break, because when you over Ooh, another you one past your point, then you run into problems. You know, that's where you preventable need... poor outcomes, actually preventable mm -hmm. poor outcomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. And um, you can step back from the work. In fact, I think most midwives find a way to take a break for at least a month. Some I should vacation yeah. when you're kind of out of out of zone and you yeah. have other people taking over your clients, not for the birth, but for the prenatals, et cetera, the follow-up. Yeah, yeah. And what I what I also say to my students is you'll always be a midwife. Even if you're not doing verse, you're doing well woman care or you're writing a book or you're, you know. As long as you identify as a midwife, you're a midwife. Totally. And, um, and also remember that midwife is not just a noun, it's a verb. So <laughs> we midwife, like we midwife people in the supermarket line that see us holding a, a book on birth and start um, downloading their birth experience 30 years ago. I mean, we midwife, yeah. we midwife in the executive word, world by being um, alert and compassionate and opening that big space for real solutions to come in. It's a, uh, it's an amazing identity and it's such a, such a, a gift. It's a calling. I always say the only thing close to it is the priesthood. Mm -hmm. You're never not a priest once you're a priest right. yeah. and people talk to you day and night about all kinds of like, you're always doing the thing. And that's how midwifery is too. We have a t-shirt that we made that is the definition of midwifery. And it says, number one, a change agent. No, 
Number two, um, a person who assists with transformation. And I feel like that's it. It's that simple. That's how we midwife people in business. Like I'm, I midwife people in business and I midwife people on their soul journeys and you midwife yes. people in entering midwifery and all these things. Like it's massive. I've, I've done healing work like that myself and yeah. I keep it on the lowdown, but definitely I, I, I've done that work and, um, oh, it's just, it's a way of life. It's just a way yeah. of life. And, and it's so it's a good way of life. It's such a good way. And uh, I want to share it with everybody. You know, I want everybody to have a, a chance to experience that. Well, exactly. I was, I'm, I've, I've been dealing with some health issues and I was trying to make an appointment with some new provider. And so I was brainstorming like some bottom line. It's like, what questions will I ask to see if this provider is going to be someone who can help me? And like, I was thinking about it, thinking about it. And then finally, like this sentence occurred to me and I wrote it down and it was like uninterrupted hour to discuss my case. And I wrote it down and I read it and I was like, oh my God, that's midwifery. Like there's no physician in the world that's going to give me an uninterrupted hour. No. And it just made me really understand how we're, we're totally yeah. at odds. Like actually the foundation of healthcare is care and we're missing that in the medical industrial complex. But that's what's so special about midwifery is that we have this, this link, this connection, this space holding, and it's a way of life. Like you said, it's a way of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think medical people are still being taught um, the, the value of clinical detachment. Mm -hmm. And in midwifery, you really don't have clinical detachment. You don't want that. You want connection, as you said. And we have our body of expertise, our body of knowledge, and it's more available to, to us when we are connected, not when we try to stay mm. artificially separate. And docs are taught to do that, you know? And, and that's why they, they don't want to spend an hour with you because they don't know what they do with it. Like, what do I, whoa, you know? But again, I've also, I had experience back in those days you speak of where I would transport to a hospital to a particular doctor and the first thing he would say is, let's go talk out here. Tell me everything that's going on. He want, really wanted to know my work, my perspective. He ended up marrying a nurse midwife. <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, but he truly had curiosity and, and wanted to get the big picture of what we were dealing with and wanted to be informed of where we were going by me. So like the most amazing collaboration could ever ask for. And that too. Amazing. I wish. I wish everybody could have yeah. that. I wish that too. Collaboration, connection. Well, Elizabeth, what a pleasure. It's just such an honor to know you and connect with you and share you with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've had a wonderful time. Big hugs. Right. Thank mm. you again. Thank you too. All right. I'll talk bye. to you again. Okay. Bye. <laughs>